0: The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters.
1: I never would have even thought about trying to do the World Marathon Challenge or run run in Antarctica if I had not had Parkinson's. So you, you land on this snow and ice runway. It's basically, there's nothing there except some research tents. There's a uh, a, a rectangle around the runway of, of a, a, a path that they basically smush down the ice and the snow to make it you know, easy to run on it was the time of year when the sun is out all day long in Antarctica. So even though we were running at night, we ran in the, in the sun and it was, it was just beautiful and, and so serene. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, that, that's that's an example of how the, the, the lemons have given me lemonade.
0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Hearing Podcast, where we share with you our conversations with interesting legal professionals. I'm Lauren Sobel, and today's episode is all about a man who is the epitome of inspiring, and his name is Brett Parker. Brett is the executive director of the New York City Bar Association and a lawyer who loves his job. But what also makes him special is that he is a man who does epic stuff, like seven marathons in seven days on seven continents and yes you heard that right that's 26.2 miles a day for seven straight days on all seven continents including Antarctica Um, he has also taken on a challenge of running four miles every four hours for 48 hours straight among several other challenges that you'll hear about in the episode And yes, while this stuff is epic, what is more epic is that Brett is doing all of this with Parkinson's disease. In fact, as you'll hear, Parkinson's is what motivates him to do these types of, um, as he puts it, stupid, crazy things. Um, But for the record, I think inspiring crazy things might be a better phrase. We talk all about these challenges, Brett's um, diagnosis, and, and more like what the legal profession could be doing better when it comes to accommodating people dealing with physical and cognitive challenges. You may notice I use the words inspiring and amazing a lot here, but once you hear Brett's story, I think you'll agree they are more than warranted. I hope that Brett inspires you to also do epic stuff after hearing this episode. The Hearing. Welcome Brett. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. since this is a legal podcast, I would normally start out with a question like, tell me about your legal career. But because it's you and I know you're not shy, I thought a better starter might be something like, tell us about yourself and what makes you unique.
1: So thanks. And thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. And so um, a lot of things make me unique. But I guess the thing that, that makes me particularly unique is that I'm a lawyer. I'm an executive director of the New York City Bar. And I'm I have Parkinson's. I was diagnosed with Parkinson's. When I was 38, which is about 16 years ago, and I've uh, I've turned my my lemons into some lemonade, which we'll talk about.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, I so I have known you a while now, and I've had the the I, I say this in earnest: the fortune of of watching what it is you do, you know, publicly on social media. Um, I you know I am so beyond. Um, impressed and and you know there are so many words I could use and and I'm sure our listeners um, by the end will see see why that is. Um, So I definitely want to talk to you about your Parkinson's diagnosis, but um, you mentioned you are the executive director of the New York City Bar. So tell us, I guess, how did that come about? Um, How did you become the executive director?
1: So this is this is not my career plan. I was a I was a practicing lawyer. I worked at some law firms and some in-house legal departments as a litigator and an IP lawyer, and I had always been involved with the New York City Bar Association. I, I, uh, I, I chaired the trademark committee. I served on the pro bono committee and I, I was always my side my side game, my, my sort of you know, volunteer work. And then the executive director was retiring. And I said to myself, wait a second, they might pay me to do this full time. <laughs> and so I, I applied and, and, and got the job. And um, I've been doing it for, for 10 years. And um, I, I, again, I really liked practicing law. I mean, I, I was not one of those lawyers that was looking to get out of the practice of law. But I also liked the legal profession and, and working with lawyers and talking to lawyers and, and doing, you know, doing, helping lawyers do, do good and do well at the same time. And so the, C- the city bar was a great way for me to do that.
0: So what is your day to day like as executive director? What you mentioned, you uh, speak with a lot of lawyers and, and you help them. But what exactly you know, is your day to day like?
1: So being the executive director of the city bars is is, is um, it's a really varied job because, you know, one minute I could be working with our policy folks on a, a position that we're publishing with one of our committees. Um, the next minute I could be talking to our f- head of facilities about uh, doing construction uh, of on an office. Um, or dealing with sort of, you know, uh, HVAC issues, you know, next minute I could be in an event with, um, assistant US attorneys, which as I was at one last night, uh, you know, 150 of them in a room giving an award to some prosecutors. So it, it's, it's, it's a real wide gamut of, of activity and, and responsibilities.
0: It sounds like a fun job also, which I feel like fits with your, with your personality. You, you certainly are very outgoing. Um, and I think the people who know you, know, you know, you, you, like you said, make, make the most out of life and, and make uh, a lot of lemonade out of, out of lemons.
1: Yeah. And, and, and the, I mean, the great thing about the City Bar is everybody who works there really is just wants to, wants to help and, you know, help people, help the public. We do a lot of pro bono. And so, um, yeah, so, so we have a great team and, and it makes the day-to-day job, you know, really enjoyable.
0: Which is awesome, right? That's everybody's dream is to have an enjoyable job. So that's great. So we mentioned lemons Um, so I wanted to turn back to your Parkinson's diagnosis but tell us when when and how did you first um, notice symptoms how did your diagnosis come about and I think you mentioned that you were you were 38 which is I think unusual it's pretty young Um, so can you can you tell our listeners a little bit about that
1: Sure. So yeah, I mean, it's it a big, fat, hairy lemon. So uh, I'm 38 years old. And the only symptom I noticed was that my hand would shake very little bit when I poured a bottle, like a big bottle of soda. And I thought to myself, I must be spending too much time on the keyboard. I must be carpal tunnel or something like that. I go to my doctor, he sends me to a neurologist. And you know, there, there's there, basically after like a 10 minute exam, he says, oh, you have Parkinson's. Now, I'm 38 years old. I'm married. I have two very young kids. I don't even really fully understand what Parkinson's is. And and my first question was like, am I going to die from this? Like I, I literally had no idea what it meant. And so I then eventually went to a movement disorder specialist, an expert who does nothing but this. And she spent an hour and a half with me and, and I got a better understanding, but the same diagnosis, which was I have Parkinson's. And at that point, I didn't know how quickly this was going to progress. Um, uh, you know, it, you know, it, it's sort of like a ticking time bomb. You just don't know when it's going to go off. And so... Uh, so that was that was very shocking at first.
0: I am sure. So, for people who may not know exactly what Parkinson's is, can you you know summarize in a sentence or two what what it is?
1: Sure. So it's a neurological condition. Um, it is um, it is a progressive neuro- neurological condition. So it gets worse over time. They don't always know how quickly it's going to get worse, but it does get worse over time it's caused by any of a number of things. And there are actually multiple causes and multiple kinds of Parkinson's, but it affects things from like, uh, movement. It causes tremors. Um, uh, it causes a lot of other symptoms. Uh, uh, you know, I have a diminished sense of smell. I don't sleep well. Um, I, uh, and it can cause cognitive issues over time. So, so over time, you know, it it causes a lot of physical and non-physical, uh, symptoms and there's no cure for it right now. There's, there's a lot of really good research. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But it's, there's no cure. And, and this, the, the medication sort of addresses the symptoms, but not always very effectively.
0: And so, I mean, obviously, it's a um, devastating diagnosis. Um, you decided to maybe not share uh, the diagnosis at first. Can yep. you can you talk to us about you know your decision to sort of keep it quiet? What went into it and and how you kept it a secret?
1: So you know the symptoms were so were so so minor at first, and I thought to myself, I don't want to worry. My I, I told my, my wife actually, and, and and a close friend, and my parents, but I and I didn't want to worry people. There's there's first of all there's nothing to do. The symptoms were not noticeable. I didn't want my kids to to be you know sort of worried about it. So for five years I basically didn't tell anybody. Um, didn't didn't want it to affect my job you know i i know when people hear you have some sort of a condition like this they have all sorts of uh, judgments and 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 conclusions and they you know and i i didn't want anyone sort of feeling bad for me or or making decisions about my career that that were a little premature so i just wanted to sort of do my job live my life and and i pretty much didn't think about it for a while i didn't take many medications and the symptoms for the first four and a half years were fairly minor
0: and so what sort of um Changed your mind? Obviously, you're speaking about it in a public forum now, and and Cat's anybody, out of the, bag. <laughs> the cat is out of the bag. So, what what made you ultimately decide to to you know change your initial decision, and what made you decide to share it?
1: So, the symptoms were getting a little bit more noticeable. So, the tremor was kicking in a little bit more often. I have rigidity and stiffnesses on my right side. So, sometimes it would look like I had a limp or my my arm wouldn't swing. And a couple of people made comments. Someone someone said, oh, it looks like I've I hurt myself. My son, actually, my younger son, Ben, noticed the tremor, mm. um, and, so, and and I sort of, sort, of, sort of brushed it off. But I decided, you know what, better for me to sort of control the story of, of what's happening to me and not let people assume things. So I decided I would tell people, and I decided I would tell everybody at once.
0: And how did you, how did you tell everybody at once? Tell us.
1: Well, you know, in for a penny and for a pound. So, uh, <laughs> since I was telling people, I decided to. I, I published a, uh, an essay on the Forbes website um, called "My Last: The Last Workplace Secret," and it was when I told everybody all at once. I wrote about my diagnosis and my decision to keep secret and my decision then tell people. And I basically sent an email to people and said, "Go read this." And that's how most people felt, you know, found out about it. And it it was sort of an easy way out for me because instead of having to tell the story one at a time, and I did tell some people personally, but every time I told that story personally, I would cry, they would cry. It was, you know, it was very upsetting and it was exhausting. And so another benefit of doing the blog was that it just, it just told everybody all at once.
0: I want to encourage everybody to read it. It is very powerful. And not only are you um, a talented attorney, you're also an amazing writer. And to be able to sort of harness all the emotion and and everything that sort of went into play with you, keeping it a secret and then deciding to come out, uh, it's very powerful and it's a great read. I, I highly encourage people to, to take a look at it.
1: Oh, thank you. I appreciate
0: it. So when you were... Thinking about keeping it uh, to yourself, as you mentioned, actually, um, you know, you didn't want people to view you a certain way. Um, did you were you worried about your legal career if oh, people yeah. knew?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, again, I didn't want people making decisions about my career. Um, and, you know, and also it just it's just. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, lawyers are a very sort of a high chart, you know, high charging, hard, hard driving group. And um, and I don't want people thinking that I couldn't do my job because I because I had a, sort of a symptom, um, you know, and, um, and and it wasn't it wasn't impacting my work at that point. So so it was only when it's when it became more noticeable that I decided I want to tell people. And the fact is this not telling people is stressful, too, um, you know, having to worry about when my symptoms were going to act up and, and whether someone would notice. You know, that that stress actually creates the more symptoms. And so you get in this vicious cycle of of symptoms and stress and stress and symptoms. So telling people also made it made it easier for me to to manage my symptoms. And it also made it easier for me to manage the reaction.
0: Did you come across anyone who when you, you know, revealed your diagnosis said to you, I also have Parkinson's or I also have some other, you know, issue that I was going to keep secret, but you you inspired me to to speak up?
1: Yeah. I mean, over time, people came to me with not just Parkinson's, but all sorts of medical issues. So, um, so, you know, someone would tell me, you know, I have a heart condition or I have MS or I, you know, and, and, and they, they would share with me the dynamic of how do you, how do you balance keeping a professional life while still having a, a, a medical issue, which, you know, may not interfere with the actual doing the job, but may affect how people see you or, or make decisions about your career path. And, and, um, and also, you know, I didn't I didn't want to I knew that the odds were at some point I'd be applying for another job. And I didn't want to have people wonder, like, could I do the job?
0: So have you ever faced any um, discrimination or experienced any sort of um, hardship as someone with Parkinson's in the legal industry from from your fellow lawyers or, or anybody in the legal industry?
1: Yeah, I mean, when I started telling people, uh, most people were incredibly supportive and 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 helpful, and and just, they just wanted to be uh, be there for me. You know, a couple of people who just were, were sort of uncomfortable with it, and and you know, one person said after he had, he had read the, the essay, he goes, he goes, so you have Parkinson's, He's like, what am I supposed to do with that? So some people wow. were uncomfortable, and and so that I had that dynamic. Some people would come up to me and say, like, how are you doing? Using that sort of that tone of how are you doing, mm-hmm. and I, I'm like. Oh, you mean the Parkinsons, or do you mean like how am I doing today? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so uh, again, it was t- you know telling telling people made it easier, um, and um, most people reacted very favorably. A couple of people I could tell um, wondered like, could I keep doing my job? You know, I, I was glad that I had sort of sort of was at a point in my career. Where I didn't feel like I had to prove as much of uh, you know t- you know I t- do you know, t- you know, t- you know, sort of establish myself as a, as you know a good lawyer and and you know um, I think people would give me the benefit of the doubt um, but I didn't want people thinking for example some I, I know people with Parkinson sometimes they, they, the the way they move around people think that they're drunk or they have another issue mm-hmm. and so um, and I speak to a lot of people about how to manage that dynamic of whether you tell or don't tell at work
0: so what do you say when somebody comes up to you and 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 you're discussing it and they say oh well what am i supposed to do with that what what's your reaction how do you respond to that
1: well the first thing i want to tell i want to, i want people to feel at ease talking about it with me I, you know i don't want i think the, the most important thing is for people to feel comfortable to ask me anything to say whatever they want i mean I'm i'm a fairly open person and i'd much rather Sort of hear what their questions or their you know their curiosity is and, and answer it rather than have them assume the worst. So, so the second thing I try to do is, is throw a little humor into it because there's nothing like a like like humor to help a, a life-threatening neurological condition sound a little bit better. So, um you know and and you know I'm a glass half full person. So I, I have two choices. I can sit in a room and feel bad for myself, or I can make the best of it and 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 make make some humor about it when I can help others when they're you know when they're struggling with decisions about how to how to manage it. Um, And so I just I just choose that path.
0: It's admirable. Not everybody can do that um, when faced with with things like this. So I think, again, it's just one of the things um, knowing you that that I admire. Um, It's that might be the hardest thing people can do. And it's probably the best thing you you can do. Do you feel the legal industry is is well equipped to deal with disability and and serious illness and is there things um are there things that the legal industry can be doing better um to sort of help people um with a serious diagnosis like this
1: yeah i think the legal industry is is not great at dealing with with uh disability issues i mean I, i think the legal industry is is a tough place and so um you know, it's not always ready to accommodate people. Um, you know, the feeling is you're either you're either you're either hard driving or you're not. And if you have a medical condition and and you and you can't do everything exactly the same way with the same intensity, that that's a problem. And I, I think the legal industry is, is getting better at it. Um, um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, you know f- physical disability. I feel like the legal industry has sort of gotten better about that in terms of physical access. But on on issues relating to either mental health or or uh, or some of the other symptoms that, you know, that, that Parkinson's raises, I, I think that the, the industry's gotten better. There's a lot of obviously focus on mental health and wellness and, I'm, I'm br- you know, bringing your authentic self to work. And I think that's, a, that's, that's all good. Um, but it's still a very judgmental place. Um, and, and so, um, so it's not, it's not, a hundred, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not where we, want, where we need to be yet.
0: Is there one particular thing that you think the legal industry can do to sort of affect the change that that needs to happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, I th- I think uh, I think rethinking the, the the business model of being a lawyer because um, you know, for example, at a, at a law firm, a lot of it is based on, on billable hours, and so um, you know, there may, there are days when I feel great and I could I could work all day and feel wonderful, but there are times when I feel fatigued or tired or or I just sort of um, you know, my, my uh, mental function is, to me, it seems slightly diminished, although my doctor tells me it's not, mm-hmm. um, although he, he does something he tells me it is, he just thinks that I'm compensating for it. Um, so, you know, I think, I think that the legal profession could look at different ways to help let people feel and, and contribute and be practicing lawyers, but, but when they need an accommodation to get one, you know, if they can't bill 2,000 hours, well, maybe they can bill 1,500 hours and you know you have to figure out how you, how you compensate for that and, and 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 but i think finding different roles for people to 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 be able to work and contribute as lawyers depending on where their symptoms and their illnesses are at is would be a good thing
0: the hearing you're an attorney with a passion to perform a drive to be absolutely on your game with superior resources serious preparation, and total confidence. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. I'm
1: Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the
0: world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. So I want to shift gears a little bit um, to one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast Um, It is your motto. It's something you very openly live by. It's all over your social media. It's been written about um, how it's your motto publicly online. And it's a three-word phrase, the last word of which is an expletive. So as much as the uh, New Yorker in me would love to use an expletive on the podcast, I'm going to refrain and substitute it. Um, And that phrase is do epic Stuff and the stuff uh, is is the replacement for the expletive that rhymes with fit, as in my producers would have a fit if I use the real word. So we're gonna go with do epic stuff. So tell us, how did this become your catchphrase, and what does it mean to you?
1: So yes, and, I, and I'm familiar with the the, the PG thirteen version of <laughs> of my my, of my motto. So after I a, after I told sort of telling people that I had Parkinson's, I got very involved with the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And one of the things that I decided to do each year was do a, fu- a fundraiser, uh, doing some sort of an activity um, to raise money for, for Parkinson's research. And so, you know, I started off with things like like a marathon and, and you know, runs, you know, sort of very basic stuff. And during one of my, my training marathons along the way, I saw someone at the, I think it was at the Chicago Marathon, a woman was standing in the middle of the crowd cheering people on and she had this, this gigantic t-shirt that she had three, three big words, do epic. Stuff on the shirt, and I thought to myself, that is exactly how I feel. Um, you know, I I wanted to live my life as large as I could for as long as I could, and um and and epic can mean different things for different people, but for me, epic sometimes is finishing a marathon or 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 doing something else, but you know, epic again, it's individual. And I think I think just knowing that despite what you have, in fact, because of what you have, illness-wise, to push yourself to do something epic whenever possible. Um, to me, it was, was a good way for me to channel my, my desire to, to do something productive.
0: It's, it's ironic. You, you started off saying, oh, I've done basic things like a marathon. Well, uh, to me, that's not so basic. I've never run one. I don't think I ever will. Um, so never so, say never. <laughs> that's true. Never say never. Highly unlikely. I'll put, I'll put it at a highly unlikely, okay. but never say never. Um, so you've, um, yeah, like you said, done basic stuff like a marathon, <laughs> um, but you've also done stuff like run seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. So so tell us about that. How does that even work logistically? Talk us through that.
1: So yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, it is a pretty stupid, crazy thing. And, <laughs> and basically, um, I, I with a group of people, we, we um, did the World Marathon Challenge, which is uh, marathons on all seven continents over seven straight days. Um, and each of them is a full marathon because I get that question like, well, how long is each marathon? So <laughs> marathons 26.2 miles. I was going to
0: say, and, does that change? Yeah, no.
1: And, and and yes, Antarctica is one of the seven continents. <laughs> so we ran in Antarctica. And so Makes it's sense. basically – and it's the stupidest thing ever. You, you basically run. You, you fly somewhere. So we flew to Antarctica first. You land. You run. Then you get back on the plane and you go to the next continent. It was a charter plane. There were 50 of us. And and we would just run, get back on the plane, sleep and eat on the plane, and then r- uh, rinse and repeat. And so most of the marathons were at night because just you know we uh, you know it's, we had to run 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 whenever we landed to finish within the seven days. Um, they were um, uh, needless to say, I was the slowest person uh, in the group. Um, uh, you know the first couple of marathons I I did okay, but but you know, the, over, over a couple of days, you know, my body started to wear, wear out. My medication wasn't as helpful. The sleep was not great. Um, the food, you know, I ate a a lot of Pringles basically for seven days, which was my, was my go-to food. And so by the end I was, you know, I was basically walking a bunch of it. Um, and, um, the, 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 the worst of the seven marathons was in Lisbon, which was marathon number five. And, um, uh, that one took me nine, over nine hours. And I actually, when I woke up, when, when I, we ran at night. So when I finished at six in the morning, most of the other runners were in the hotel lobby, having breakfast, getting ready to get back on the plane. I was just coming in for the first time, having finished late to shower. And so, so it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was a, it was a really, um, incredible adventure, um, you know, finishing in Miami, uh, with friends and family, you know, cheering, cheering us on was amazing. Um, um, and it was, it was just, you know, it was very life affirming for me. You know, it really made me realize that despite anything, you know, we can all rise up and do, do something epic.
0: Absolutely incredible. Of the 50 people who were doing this challenge with you, were you the only one, I guess, A, with Parkinson's? That's my Yep, I'm,
1: yep, I'm definitely, definitely that, yep.
0: And then... I'm assuming, and maybe I shouldn't assume, but assuming as far as you know, the other 49 people, um, you know, were didn't have any other debilitating um, diagnosis.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we had uh, uh, one person who who ran it who had dyslexia, and and so you know he he you know that that affects him a little you know a little bit in some ways. Um, Sarah Reinertsen, who is a um, uh, an amputee and, and did the Hawaii Ironman. She did the Half World Marathon Challenge. So she did she did seven half marathons over seven days, over seven you know, on seven continents with us. And um, she's an amazing, inspiring person. In fact, she I met her before this, and she she's part of one of the reasons that, that inspired me to do this. I mean, knowing about her and knowing about the, the this uh, this father and son uh, team of the Hoyts if You've heard of the Hoyts, but they've they've run they've done the the Hawaii Ironman, um, and um, you know with with the father pulling the son in a raft on the swim, you know in a in a stroller in the run, you know on, on the bike, um, you know hearing about these kinds of stories inspired me to do my epic stuff, um, and so um, but yeah no I think everyone else on the on the trip had you know didn't have any real physical problems. Apparently, we we definitely all had mental problems because we, we had no business doing something <laughs> crazy like that.
0: Look, if that's the kind of mental problems uh, one has, I I think those are good ones to have. What was the best continent to run on? Um,
1: The best was, I mean, finishing in uh, in North America was was the best. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, I I got more, you know, I suddenly had a little more energy and, and, and... Could see I could literally see the finish line. I I think the most interesting one was obviously Antarctica because you know you you I I had never been to Antarctica. I think a lot of people haven't been. So so you you land on this ice snow and ice runway. It's basically there's nothing there except some research tents. And so you land on this ice runway. Um, There's a there's a a a a rectangle around the runway of of a a path that they basically smush down the ice and the snow to make it you know easy to run on. And it, it was—I mean, it was beautiful. I mean, it was—it was in February, which is uh, the time of year when the sun is out all day long in Antarctica. So even though we were running at night, we ran in the in the sun, and, and it was it was just beautiful and and so serene. Um, and that's you know, I mean that that's that's an example of how the, the the lemons have given me lemonade. I never would have even thought about trying to do the World Marathon Challenge or run run in Antarctica if I had not had Parkinson's. And so Parkinson's actually gave me the inspiration and it also gave me the liberty to try stupid stuff like this because <laughs> you know you sort of feel like you have to and and I, I don't think I would have been as inspired if I didn't have this life challenge
0: if that is not uh, glass half full I don't know what is um, and I, it's an incredible and, and powerful message um, to, to send to people um, you just said something about carving out the path so were you was it a 26.2 mile circle or what were you just running in a circle
1: it was like a four or five mile rectangle around the runway and we, we ran it like five five or so times and and i'll tell you like it started off really great it wasn't too cold it wasn't too windy um a couple of problems right away um i dropped my pill bag
0: oh no so i had to, i had to
1: take pills constantly so i on the first lap i, I must have dropped my pill bag at the at the the water, the water food station. So I, I had to wait till I got around to the next lap to, to, to find my pill bag, which was fine. And then also important safety tip, iPhones freeze at some point. And so (laughs) I was listening to music and then the battery started conking out. And I said, what is going on? And I I found out later that, that iPhones at a certain temperature freeze and stop functioning. So, so for the last half of it, I did not have my my music, which I, you know, sort of helps me go. Um, And also um, when I finished it was it had gotten really cold really windy and and one of the symptoms that I have sometimes is is my body just sort of reacts to cold or heat and cold sometimes I have this incredible shivering attack I mean my whole body shivers it's not a regular shiver and so I finished shivering like crazy and they basically had to put me on the on the on the the, the, the snowmobile and get me into the tent quickly until I could sort of get my body to calm down. But, but nothing permanent, no permanent damage recovered fine. And, um, but Antarctica was definitely amazing.
0: What was not, not to focus on, on the negative, but I'm just curious, what was going through your mind when you're having that shivering attack and you're in Antarctica? <laughs> what- I,
1: I just, I just thought to myself, first of all, I, I, I wanted people to know that I wasn't like having a heart attack or, or like, like it was not, it was not life threatening. It was just very uncomfortable. And it's uncomfortable for people to see it i mean you know people don't always see me symptomatic um so they they see me when i'm feeling great and looking great and doing great um but there are times when i'm not so great and, and it's sort of jarring for people to see me go from from you know me feeling totally fine to feeling completely not fine and so what's going through my mind is i have got to get i've got to get warm i've got to get inside and i've got to get out of this wet cold set of because we ran in like down jackets and gloves and we had go- snow goggles on because the sun is so bright. And, and I was basically equipped to like climb a mountain. And in 20 less than 24 hours, I was going to have to go to South Africa and and run in 80 degree weather.
0: I think that's also, you know, another testament to who you are that you're you're going through this and you're thinking about other people and worrying about other people. Um, I, again, I mean, just something you don't hear every day. Okay, so you've you've done the world marathon challenge. I have a feeling that's not all you'll do. What's next on the list of do epic stuff?
1: Well, I've done I've done some other stupid things and, and not so stupid things. So so I skydived one one year for 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 Team Fox to raise money for them. Um, I did. Uh, I'm a t- I'm a terrible swimmer. I fell into a pool as a kid, so I never really learned how to swim properly. I can't. I still can't dive face first into water. But I did an Olympic length uh, triathlon. Um, so I, so I've done things that are maybe you know th- that are epic for me. Um, right now, uh, next week I'm doing a four four forty eight. Which which is four miles every four hours for forty eight hours, and so basically it's you know it's it's a, it's slow. I can run it, I can walk it. I mean, anyone you know, you can do four miles in an hour in four hours pretty easily. But doing it again and again and again and having to stop, let your body sort of ramp down, and then have to ramp up again at the next four hour window. That's and not sleeping very much for two days. Um, in some ways, this is harder than this, the World Marathon Challenge because the World Marathon Challenge, at least. I get to sleep on each plane for, you know, we had a 12 hour flight sometimes that I could, I could get six, seven hours of sleep. This, you really can't sleep more than two or three hours, you know, uh, maybe once or twice during the two days. Um, and so anyway, I'm doing that, uh, uh, next week.
0: That's amazing. And where are you doing that?
1: Doing it in, in, in Long Island. So basically a bunch of friends and I are gonna, are gonna, are gonna do these, these four mile loops or two, two mile, two mile there, two mile back runs. Uh, and walks. So I'll probably walk a lot of it. And um, and again, tr- you know, trying to raise money for the Michael J-, Michael J. Fox Foundation.
0: So speaking of Michael J. Fox, that's one of the things I also wanted to talk to you about. Um, so a lot of our listeners are actually located in other parts of, of the world outside of the United States. Who is Michael J. Fox? Um, and what is the Michael J. Fox Foundation?
1: Michael J. Fox is a, a Canadian-born uh, actor and philanthropist and um, uh, optimist, um, he, uh, he was known for, for a lot of movies, Back to the Future, um, and other movies, uh, including Teen Wolf, which is probably not one he's the most proud of. Um, <laughs> he, is, he, is, he, co- he founded the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. To, uh, he has Parkinson's. He was diagnosed even younger than I was, and he's had it for a long time. And he founded the foundation to raise money for research. Um, and so that's where I've directed most of my efforts.
0: And so how much money have you raised since you've been involved with the Michael J. Fox Foundation for for Parkinson's research.
1: So I've raised over nine hundred thousand dollars over over you know over several years. Um, you know I, I raised a, a lot during the World Marathon Challenge, but each year I do I do one event and 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 people are so generous. Um, um, you know what what it's, what really excites me is when someone who doesn't even know who who I am, who's not a friend, but but donates any anyway. Um, that sort of renews my faith in people and, um, and, and that's my, you know, my, Michael's the same way. You know, I think he, you know, he is a glass half full guy too. And, um, and so doing this makes, helps me feel like I'm, I'm making it, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a researcher, so I'm not going to find the cure, but I can help raise money. So those who are doing research can find the cure. So, um, uh, this is my way of channeling that, that desire.
0: It's just encouragement to do something else. Epic, right? Um, is there anything else you have in mind that you haven't done yet that you think you will do if you if you don't mind sharing?
1: Oh, I, I have lots of dreams. Um, you know, I, I I had this fantasy of doing the Hawaii Ironman. But I, I, you know, I, I let's just say I haven't I haven't said I haven't said never. Um, but I, I just feel like some of these you know some of these, you know, frankly, some of these are going to get harder for me as my my symptoms get worse. You know, it's not going to get easier for me. And and so, and I know that's, and I know that for some people, their Parkinson's is really tough. Um, and, and for them, Epic would be like getting out of bed in the morning. And so I, I don't want to begrudge anybody defining Epic, you know, whatever way they want. Um, you know, these, these physical things for me, you know, motivate me to exercise and tr- and get in shape. Um, and that's helpful for me. It's, it's, you know, the, the one thing they know about, about Parkinson's is exercise helps. So it's, it's really helpful for me to do this. It'd probably be better if I didn't do the crazy stuff and did sort of more manageable stuff. But that doesn't inspire me as much to to get in shape.
0: So you mentioned you're you're not a scientist, right? You're not a researcher. But how, as somebody who has Parkinson's, how closely do you follow the science behind the research and and um, you know what's going on in terms of cures?
1: So I'm very fortunate. I'm I, I got involved with the, the foundation, you know, early after my diagnosis and in addition to doing these these events once a year, I'm the co-chair of the patient council of the foundation. So it's a, a group of patients who get together once or twice a year and also, you know, remotely other times of the year to work with the foundation and the, and the community to help find cures and, and treatments for, for Parkinson's. And so, um, so I, you know, I, 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 I follow, I, I follow the information and the research because I'm, I'm, I'm involved with the foundation and the, and and they have so much information on their website, and, and so much information they publish. that that's how I get most of my my information on Parkinson's. And um, there's all sorts of very, very exciting research. There there was very big development this year that they, they found for the first time a biomarker for for some kinds of Parkinson's. So they, they you know there's no there's no sort of like like a like a blood test or or like a pregnancy test or like you don't like. You know, it doesn't tell you yes or no, but but they've been searching for these biomarkers, which which they they hope will allow people to figure out if they have Parkinson's before the symptoms come, and that will hopefully help make it easier for us to find treatments and a cure.
0: With respect to your to your sons and and um, you know, I guess first telling them about your diagnosis, did you sort of have a plan of action? Did you just sit them down and see what came out? How did you sort of approach that?
1: You know, we, we try to do it sort of, I mean, to the extent you can make some of that low key, um, you know, they, they, they were very young. And so, you know, even after delaying, so, you know, I basically told them that I had this condition that, you know, it's going to make dad's hand shake once in a while and you may see some other symptoms, but, you know, but, uh, but it's, uh, you know, this is, this is, this is not, a, it's not a deadly disease. Now people, people die with Parkinson's. They don't die from Parkinson's. So, um, uh, you know, they, they, you know, now that they're older, they understand a little bit better, you know, the 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 future, which is that you know it will get worse over time. Um, my younger son um, uh, is it works for a healthcare consulting company, so he's very interested in in, in, in science and research, and so he's you know, he's very actively engaged in, in sort of following following the science. Um, my my older son is a, uh, Matt is a, is a he, he's a public policy he got a public policy master's, and so I'm not sure what he's going to go into next, but he's also the two of them are very interested in in, in the stuff that I do. Um, you know, they they uh, you know they 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 come to my events. They're they're, you know, they're going to be with me for the four four next week, um, and they they also help me with social media because they when I when I'm trying to post something on social media and I can't do it the right way, I can ask one of them to show Dad how to not be a, a moron.
0: <laughs> um, they must be so proud of you and must be so proud to have you um, as their dad. I can only imagine, you know how inspired they are to to be great people um having having you as a role model so you
1: know it, it probably looks different to them being being you know being my son and, and having me as a dad um they recognize first of all that i don't exercise as much as i should um you know my son matt was telling me the other day he's like so did you do a long run are you doing a long run today and and so so they're they're there to nudge me and, and i'm i'm much prouder of them than they are of me
0: did they run any part of the marathons with you when you do, or I, I think you said there was family in Miami? Did they run anything with you while while you were there?
1: So you know, Ben Ben's, Ben plopped into the, the the no one was with us for the first six. So it was only in North America and Miami that people showed up. and so so Ben, Ben sort of ran uh, like a little bit with me part of the way there. Um, he also um he he ran a little bit of the end of my triathlon. Um, and, and, uh, and Matt and Ben will be out there on the course, uh, next week for the four, So they, they, you know, they, they sort of dip dip about, I, I don't need them doing the crazy stuff. Um, um, but it's nice to know that they're, they're sort of rooting for me and, and they both, you know, help me with, as I mentioned, social media and, and, and telling my story and sharing it. And they, you know, they share it with their friends and, and, you know, their, their friends, um, uh, you know, are very supportive. And in fact, it was one of, one of their friends, uh, who did the 448 the first time. And, and that's how I learned about it. He, he was doing it for his fraternity. Um, and I saw that on social media. And I said, that's an interesting idea. And so when young, young folks do things like that, which they raise money for, for charities, I don't think they realize what an impact they have on others and how inspiring just doing that is. I mean, that, 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 that young man who did that 4, 448 for his, college fraternity inspired me to do this and is inspiring about a dozen people who are going to do this with me. Um, And, you know, and in some ways they're partially responsible for raising all this money.
0: It's an amazing way, amazing sort of chain of events from Greek life to, (laughs) to fundraising for, for Parkinson's. What do you do to celebrate when you do these epic things? (laughs) What, how do you celebrate that?
1: So, uh, you know, after the, after the world marathon challenge, you know, we had this We had like a little party afterwards i was so tired and my feet were so uh i i was luckily this no one could no one will be able to see this but i I had a blister on my foot this basically half this half of my foot and and i couldn't i actually couldn't walk for a little while after the the world marathon challenge and so you know i ambitiously i try to have a celebration but realistically it takes a day or two for me to recover and then i can really celebrate
0: sure sure uh, did you go on vacation or do something after the World Marathon Challenge, or were you like, no more travel, no more airplanes? No, actually, I, w- <laughs>
1: I went. I went. I went to the Caribbean for for a few days and and let my feet recover.
0: Nice, your story, Brett. I I feel like you know this episode doesn't even do it justice. Um, you know, I encourage everybody to to Google Brett Parker, uh, Google the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Um, and, you know, lend their support however they can. What you do is absolutely amazing um, oh, and you. and inspiring. And I, I really can't say that enough. So thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for helping me to share, share the story and raise more awareness.
0: The Hearing. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast or consider leaving us a review to help other like-minded people find our podcast or drop us a line at thehearing at We'd love to hear from you. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash thehearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.